Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Our focus this week is exclusively on the UK general election. The campaign officially begins when Parliament is dissolved at midnight on Wednesday. But if this was a 100 metre race in the Olympics, all the candidates would be already disqualified because nobody has waited for the starting gun in this one. The campaign is already very much underway in what is shaping up to be one of the most unpredictable and indeed consequential British elections for many years. There are myriad possible outcomes and potential directions the campaign could take between now and polling day December 12th and on the line to help us plot our way through them and to set the scene for us generally is our London editor Dennis Staunton. Dennis, thanks for joining us. I'd like to start by taking each of the main parties in this election in turn and looking at their objectives in the campaign and, and, and the challenges they face. So starting with the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson, I mean, the objective, I suppose, is clear. He wants an overall majority. How big a challenge is that for Boris Johnson? What does he need to do to achieve it? Well, he, the first thing is he actually needs an overall majority because he can't, he has no potential coalition partners at Westminster. Uh, as you as you know, uh, the last uh, time uh, we had an election, Theresa May lost her majority and so she was only able to get back into power with the support of the DUP's 10 votes. And the DUP have fallen out with Boris Johnson over his Brexit deal and so they may not be available. So he really actually does need to get over 320 votes, 320-something votes, uh, if he's going to get back into government. And he's starting out from uh, a deficit. So they've got currently 298 Conservative members of Parliament. So he has to make up that deficit. But uh, So that's 20-something votes, uh, seats he's got to gain to begin with. But he's also expecting to lose some. They currently have 13 seats in Scotland. And they'd be very lucky to come back with half of them. And so uh, he'll have some loss in Scotland, expecting also to lose some seats in London and the south of England, especially to the Liberal Democrats. And then there are quite a lot of uh, seats which are Conservative Labour marginals, where the Conservatives only hold these seats by sometimes a few hundred votes. And so those are also at risk. So he's got to try to minimise the number of seats he's going to lose, but then make up for them by winning over uh, votes, uh, seats that are held by Labour, but in constituencies that voted heavily to leave the European Union in 2016. So that's his aim. And geographically, where in the country will he, will he be looking to pick up those extra seats? He'll really be looking at the north of England, the Midlands, and in Wales, particularly in the northeast of Wales. Wales, like England, voted to leave, whereas uh, Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to remain in the referendum. And so he's hoping that uh, there are some seats there which uh, where he can appeal to uh, these Leave voters with this message of getting Brexit done. And again, in some cases, the Conservatives actually have won seats in 2017 from Labour in some of these areas. In others, they've reduced Labour's uh, majority. So there's some uh, kind of low-hanging fruit. But remember, he's going to have to get uh, possibly 40, uh, maybe more, maybe sort of 60 or 70, if he wants a comfortable majority of these seats. Now, there are a lot of them there, but uh, it's it's still quite a challenge. Uh, but the places that he's going to be focusing on are the old former industrial and mining heartlands of Labour, which uh, you know have, have started to move away from Labour, partly over Brexit, and then areas around Wales. In fact, they're hoping that they could make up enough seats in Wales to compensate for whatever they're going to lose in Scotland. And this is one of the difficulties he faces uh, that in, in appealing to Leave voters in the North, everything he does to appeal to those voters, he, he, he risks alienating 
uh, voters in the South and in London who um, would like to see the UK retain a kind of close relationship with the EU after Brexit. Yes. Uh, and something that you've seen over the last few days is that, you know, initially Boris Johnson went into this campaign with the message of getting Brexit done, saying, I've got a deal. Uh, we've negotiated a deal with the European Union. It's oven ready, as he put it. And it's just pop it in the microwave and it's going to be out. And so as soon as we get back into power, we're uh, we're out the door. And this uh, was quite a good message, obviously, for Brexiteers, but also for a lot of uh, moderate conservatives who are worried about leaving the European Union without a deal. He was saying, don't worry about no deal because uh, I've got this deal, it's ready. And if we have a majority, we'll get it through Parliament. What's happened in the last few days is that because Boris Johnson has been facing criticism from the Brexit party, from Nigel Farage, he's now under pressure to uh, harden his stance on Brexit. So, for example, you saw Downing Street yesterday saying that they're absolutely ruling out extending the transition period after Brexit beyond December 2020, which means that he'll really have to be sure that he's got a trade deal with the European Union in the bag by the summer of next year, which is the deadline for seeking an extension, or else uh, there is this danger that at the end of next year, uh, Britain will uh, leave the transition period and will have no formal trading arrangements agreed with the European Union. And so he's, uh, by trying to appease, as you say, uh, and please these Leave voters in the North and the Midlands, he's then uh, opening up a flank potentially uh, down in the South to those moderate Conservatives and Remainers who are ready to put up with the idea of Brexit as long as they're sure that there's a deal and stable trading conditions with Europe. And if the election was being held tomorrow, Dennis, which of course it isn't, can we glean anything from the current state of the, the polls, opinion polls? What do they tell us about whether he's on track to get these extra 20 plus seats or not that he needs? If the election was held tomorrow, the polls would suggest that Boris Johnson would probably win that majority. He's uh, you know, more than 10% uh, ahead of Labour in most polls. Some polls have him about 8% ahead, others uh, around 15 points ahead. Uh, so Labour is down in the 20s, uh, Conservatives up in the high 30s. And uh, so while uh, the the Remain vote is split almost, uh, you know, even not quite evenly, but certainly a big chunk of it is going to the Liberal Democrats. The Brexit Party are way behind the Conservatives in terms of the share of the of the Leave vote. So if the if nothing happened, and if, as you say, the election were to happen tomorrow, then on the basis of kind of a universal uh, swing, then the Conservatives would be odds-on to win a majority. Not a huge majority, but still a, a, enough to govern with. But the problem is, of course, you have got five weeks of campaigning ahead. And what tends to happen in campaigns is that uh, the, the race narrows. And also what ha tends to happen is that smaller parties like the Brexit Party and indeed the Liberal Democrats start to get squeezed. Now, one thing, Dennis, that all parties seek to avoid in an election is scoring an own goal or, or, or a gaffe that hands their opponents a, a stick to beat them with. I think it's fair to say that one of Johnson's chief chief lieutenants, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has made just such a gaffe in this campaign. And he, he gave an interview on LBC Radio and he suggested in that interview that the Grenfell Tower fire victims who took the fire brigade's advice and stayed in the burning building didn't use their common sense. That is the tragedy of it, that the more one's read over the weekend about the report and about the chances of people surviving, if you just ignore what you're told and leave, you are so much safer. And uh, I, I think if either of us were in a fire, whatever the fire brigade said, we would leave a burning building. It just seems the common sense thing to do. And it is such a tragedy that 
that didn't happen. Now, Rhys Mogg has shown some degree of common sense himself, Dennis. He has apologised for those remarks. But so would that be the end of that, you think, or might there be some lasting damage? No, I think this is one of those uh, blunders that, uh, that that could have legs, partly because it reinforces an image that uh, a lot of people have about the Conservatives in general and, uh, and Jacob Rees-Mogg in particular, that they don't understand or empathise with people who are much less well-off than they are. And so the context of what he was saying was a question about whether the tragedy at Grenfell had anything to do with issues of race or class. And he was saying, no, uh, it didn't. And he appeared to be saying on that, uh, on that clip that you played that actually it had more to do with common sense and that it, was, it would have been common sense to ignore what the uh, fire brigade had advised people. Now, apart from the fact that uh, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, obviously a particularly uh, uh, you know, ungenerous uh, remark to make where the Grenfell victims are concerned, it's also actually bad advice because, generally speaking, in these apartment, you know, tower blocks, the advice to stay where you are is actually good advice. Grenfell had special circumstances. And so uh, he was wrong on a number of counts. He's made some kind of an apology, but I do think that a bit like that photo, that picture of Jacob Rees-Mogg reclining on the front bench in the House of Commons, which has been used in posters all over the country and uh, and online a lot. I think this is going to reinforce that image and will help Labour to portray the Conservatives as, uh, as being uncaring and out of touch. Um, let's take a look at the Labour Party, um, Dennis. Um, Jeremy Corbyn was in Harlow this morning to make a speech on Brexit. Anyone seeking to become Prime Minister must talk to and listen to the whole country. Labour stands not just for the 52% or the 48%, but for the 99%. We bring people together. Dennis, you were in Harlow for Jeremy Corbyn's speech. Actually, before I ask you about the speech itself, where is Harlow and why did Corbyn choose that location to make to make the first major speech of his campaign? Harlow is in Essex. It's one of these new towns that was built after the Second World War uh, by a Labour government, in fact, part of uh, a plan to deal with uh, with a housing shortage at the at the time after the war. And it's uh, since 1983, it's been a bellwether constituency. And so it's been with the Conservatives when the Conservatives are in government and in 97 it changed to Labour, switched back in 2010, and it's been in Conservative hands ever since. Robert Halfland, the MP, has a majority of 7,000, which is chunky enough as uh, majorities go. I mean, generally speaking, a marginal would be regarded as being under 5,000. And it also voted to leave the European Union by 70%. So it's quite an uphill struggle. Labour has a very good young candidate, Laura McAlpine, and a very uh, vigorous campaign. But these are the kinds of places that Labour would need to win if Jeremy Corbyn were to have any chance of getting an overall majority. But he chose it partly to say uh, we're fighting an aggressive campaign campaign. We're going after these conservative-held seats that we think uh, ought to be with us. And also uh, to try to put the issue of Brexit to rest in some kind of way. And so what he was saying was our policy on Brexit is not as complicated as you think it is. And we're not speaking uh, just to uh, leave voters or just to remain voters. Our plan is that we uh, get a new deal, uh, we put it to the people and uh, have another referendum uh, within six months of taking office. And after that, that's the end of Brexit. You don't have to think about it anymore. And we will then move on to all of the other things we want to do about the economy. 
Because it is a big problem for Labour, isn't it, in this campaign, if the campaign is about Brexit, unlike the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats, the Labour position isn't really clearly defined or understood. So was Corbyn attempting to almost make a strength out of what is perceived as a weakness in, in that speech? Yes, he was trying to do, to do that and saying that there's no virtue in uh, just following the polarisation of the debate on Brexit and that you have to bring people together. And he was then saying that, uh, you know, Boris Johnson talks about his uh, deal and his policy of being the quickest way to get Brexit done. But he was saying that, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Boris Johnson is going to have to go straight into uh, trade negotiations. There's going to be another year of uncertainty, possibly even longer as they uh, try to negotiated trade deal. What Jeremy Corbyn is offering is to go back to the European Union and to negotiate another Brexit deal, which would include Britain remaining in a customs union, effectively remaining in the uh, single market as well, or as he would put it, closely aligned to the single market. And so that uh, then he would put that to the people in a referendum with the other option being to remain in the European Union. So what he's saying is that either way, whether people vote for that deal or they vote to remain, there are still going to be stable trading conditions uh, between uh, the UK and Europe, and they're effectively going to be the same as they are now. And so you're not going to have to worry about it. So that's the way he was putting it. The way in which, though, uh, he has been dealing with the Brexit issue so far has been to speak about it in terms of uh, what Boris Johnson wants to do with Brexit. And what he was saying today was that really what uh, the Conservatives are trying to do is to use Brexit as an excuse to bring back Thatcherism on steroids, as he put it, and to, to negotiate a trade deal with Don, Donald Trump, uh, which would reduce uh, you know, workers' rights, would reduce environmental standards and consumer standards. And he gave a couple of graphic examples saying that uh, it would uh, be uh, involve rules that would allow maggots uh, in orange juice and rat hairs in paprika. And this actually uh, is actually true, as it turns out. A very small amount of these things are allowed uh, under American food standards. And so, uh, so he was saying that, uh, you know, so basically what he's doing is trying to tie uh, the the Boris Johnson Brexit plan with the idea of Johnson being a mini Trump and uh, a sort of a ghost of Margaret Thatcher. Now, like Johnson, Corbyn is, is chasing an overall majority in this election. Tell us about the scale of the challenge he faces to achieve that. Well, he's way behind in that uh, Labour has uh, 244 seats right now. And uh, and they, uh, you know, so they're well short of a majority starting out. But unlike Boris Johnson, Corbyn doesn't need a majority to become prime minister necessarily. He might not even have to be the biggest party because uh, if uh, Corbyn were, for example, to come back with, say, 270 seats, and the, uh, the the Scottish National Party, who now have 35 seats in Scotland out of 59, if they were to come back with 45 or 50 of them, uh, they would be willing. Uh, to come to some sort of an arrangement with Jeremy Corbyn in return for the promise of another referendum on Scottish independence. And he could also uh, call on the support of some other smaller parties. The, Joe Swinson of the Liberal Democrats is saying today she wouldn't uh, uh, allow Liberal Democrat 
votes to be used to put Corbyn into number 10. But nonetheless, he has more options, but he also has a steeper hill to climb. And Labour is defending all of those seats I mentioned in the uh, North and the Midlands and in Wales. They're expecting to lose some of the four seats they uh, still have in Scotland. And his uh, hopes of winning seats from the Conservatives in the the southeast uh, and in London in particular are now uh, complicated by the fact that the Liberal Democrats are on a bit of a roll. And they uh, not only could take seats from Labour or take uh, Conservative target seats instead of Labour, but they could also come up through the middle and split the uh, anti-Conservative vote and allow the Conservatives either to gain seats or to hold on to some of the targets they have. And will Labour, Dennis, through this campaign, campaign be seeking to shift the focus away from Brexit and onto ground where they're stronger, such as on issues like the NHS, for example? Yes, they're going to. They, already they're talking an awful lot about the NHS and uh, the NHS, the National Health Service, is a very good issue for Labour traditionally. And they're going to unveil their manifesto uh, in, in a few days' time. And that is uh, is likely to have some really uh, radical economic policies. Uh, 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 what they really promise is a, a transformation of the economy. And so, for example, uh, they want to renationalize water, rail, the Royal Mail and the energy grid. And they uh, they also want to uh, to boost workers' rights and particularly the rights of workers in the gig economy and people on casual contracts uh, who uh, miss out on a lot of the uh, the rights that people in kind of more stable employment have. They want to, uh, to, uh, to improve the rights of tenants. And one proposal that they have been considering is that uh, that people, tenants in the rental market, uh, the private rental market, they would be able to buy their flats in a kind of a, 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 a sort of a, a, an echo of what Mrs. Thatcher did in terms of buying council houses. So they'd be able to buy the homes they're living in for a reduced price. And then they're also talking about perhaps the most radical proposal would be that any company uh, with more than 250 employees would have to uh, hand over 1% of their shares every year to the employees, up to a maximum of 10%, so over a decade. And each employee would get a dividend every year of £500. And whatever extra would go to the central exchequer. And the idea would be that that would be distributed among employees elsewhere. But it's a, you know, it's essentially uh, a promise to take 10% of the value of these big companies. And uh, and so that's something that obviously will alarm big companies. But it's probably not going to be all that unpopular with the people who work there. Let's talk about the Liberal Democrats, uh, Dennis. Their leader, Joe Swinson, lodged their campaign today. But when I look at Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, I am absolutely certain I could do a better job than either of them. Now, the Lib Dems, Dennis, as our listeners will know, are a strongly pro-Remain party. They want to stop Brexit. We heard Joe Swinson, their re- relatively new leader, talk about her ambition to be Prime Minister after this election. I, I couldn't help thinking of the Gilmore for Taoiseach campaign run by the Labour Party in Ireland a few years back. But, but what is the Lib Dems, Lib Dems target in this campaign? What, what would be a good outcome for them? Well, they currently have 20 uh, MPs. They came back after the uh, 2017 election with 12, but they've had a number of defections from other parties, uh, Labour and the uh, uh, and the Conservatives and uh, Change UK, that little party that was there for a while. And so they uh, so they're hoping that they'll at least double uh, you know, that representation. And in fact, they're much more ambitious than that. They think that they can uh, take seats all over. Uh, 
the south of England, particularly the uh, London, the southeast, the southwest, which was a traditional uh, liberal Democrats stronghold. And they're hoping to pick up some seats in Scotland as well. Uh, now, they uh, have, as you say, been presenting themselves as the party of Remain. And uh, unlike Labour, who are promising a second referendum, what Joe Swinson is saying is that in the unlikely event that she did uh, become prime minister and had an overall majority, that they would simply revoke Article 50 and just cancel Brexit in Parliament. And that would be the end of that. So, uh, so in that way, she's hoping that she can outflank Labour among uh, voters in uh, the south of England, younger voters, particularly in university towns in London, for whom Brexit is the big issue and who feel as if uh, Jeremy Corbyn has been ambiguous, that he's been dithering and that he hasn't been a strong enough advocate of remaining in the European Union. And uh, so and, and, and it looks, according to the polls, at least as if she's likely to have some success, uh, you know, certainly in, uh, you know, in this part of, uh, of Britain, of, of London and, uh, and the southeast. And they also have some uh, celebrity candidates that they're, they're putting in. And this is a sign, I suppose, of their, their confidence that in three seats in London uh, where the Liberals, Liberal Democrats came third in 2017, in some cases a distant third, they've got uh, Chuko Amuna, uh, Sam Gima and Luciana Berger, uh, all of whom have defected from other parties and they're standing and they're presenting themselves as being the people who can defeat the Conservatives in these seats. And, uh, or in one case, in the, uh, Sam Gima's case, he's in Kensington, which is held by the Labour Party with a very small majority. And so, uh, so, so uh, they are attempting to come up the middle to soak up that Remain vote, and uh, and they're really uh, looking at targets that are both Labour and Conservatives. Although it has to be said that most of their top target seats are currently held by the Conservatives. There's been a lot of talk of a, a potential pact between, pact between the Lib Dems and other pro-Remain parties, specifically the Greens and, and Plaid Cymru in Wales. Is that going to happen, Dennis? Do you think, and, and how effective a strategy might that be? I think it'll happen on a small and on a local scale. What you saw in a by-election in Wales and uh, Brecon and Radnorshire in August was that Plaid Cymru and the Greens stood down and that helped the Liberal Democrats to take that seat from the Conservatives. Uh, the Liberal Democrats are standing aside in Beaconsfield to allow Dominic Grieve, former Conservative Attorney General now, an independent, very strong pro-Remain voice, to allow him a clear run as an independent in that seat. And there may be other local pacts, but the big pact that's not going to happen is between the Liberal Democrats and Labour. And uh, and um, Joe Swinson was asked this morning about why in, say, uh, a seat like Canterbury, which uh, is a university town that uh, the Labour Party uh, took back from the Conservatives, where they've got a very, very strong pro-Remain MP, why would uh, the Liberal Democrats not do a pact there, step aside to let these very pro-Remain Labour candidates go through? And she said that uh, she couldn't because the fact is these people all belong to a Labour Party, which uh, has actually backed Brexit and is not uh, a proper Remain party at all. You mentioned there, Dennis, the, the if you like harder position that the Lib Dems have taken on on the Remain position that they they've moved from campaigning for a people's vote to saying they'll revoke Brexit, uh, you know, if if possible. Is that a position that Joe Swinson might have some difficulty defending during the campaign? It doesn't seem terribly democratic. Not to go back to the people. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's certainly something that uh, that some people, uh, including uh, you know some uh, you know strong remainers, have uh, some doubts about. And I think that when she uh, came up with this policy, it was at a time when uh, during the conference season it looked as if Labour was about to go all the way over to becoming uh, a straightforward party of Remain, and there were all kinds of shenanigans at the party conference uh, where uh, Jeremy Corbyn won a conference motion, which basically didn't go as far as the Remainers wanted. They wanted Labour to say, we're going to have a referendum and we're going to campaign for Remain. Whereas what Jeremy Corbyn is saying, we're going to have a referendum and we'll let you know uh, in a while, how we're going to uh, to vote on that, and so uh, she thought that uh, it might be necessary to uh, to go a bit further over in the Remain direction herself, and so she then went for this uh, very hard revoke position. She may have sort of gone a little further. Uh, then perhaps might be comfortable. But having said that, if you talk to, say, people like uh, the election expert John Curtis, who knows more about elections than anybody, really, and he uh, will suggest that actually there's no such thing as a moderate Remainer, that they've all been so radicalised that if uh, remaining in the European Union is the big thing that you want out of this election, then uh, that very hard and uh, straightforward position uh, is probably one that would attract you. Now, the other big player in terms of current parliamentary seats anyway is the Scottish National Party. It lost some seats in the 2017 election, but from a very high base. Does it expect to recover ground in this election? Yes, it does. Uh, they are expecting to win uh, most of the Conservatives' 13 seats. They're also uh, hoping to uh, win uh, three of the four Labour seats. And they've got a couple of Liberal Democrat targets as well, including Joe Swinson's own seat, which uh, has a fairly small majority. That's a seat in Glasgow. And uh, and so they, uh, they are really aiming to get right back up where they got. I mean, they came back in... Uh, 2015, uh, with 50 out of the uh, the 59 seats in Scotland, and they then went down uh, subsequently in the next election. But uh, but there are some very very tight marginals there. One of them, in fact, the most marginal seat uh, is actually held by the SNP, Stephen Gethins, their foreign policy spokesman. And he's got a majority of just two. So if he and his wife had had the flu that day, uh, then uh, things would have been rather different. And uh, and so, you know, so, they, uh, so there are a lot of marginals there, but the SNP are extremely confident as they go into the election. And would a good result for them put the uh, Scottish independents really back on, on, at the head of the agenda again in Scotland? Yes, it would. And uh, certainly the Labour Party has said that uh, you know, it's, it's made quite clear that it is uh, open to having a, a second referendum on independence in Scotland if that's what the uh, electoral representatives in Scotland want. Although Jeremy Corbyn says it wouldn't be a priority for the early stage of his administration. But the fact is that Labour has all but lost Scotland. He, If he is to have any chance of getting into office after a general election, he will need the Scottish National Party. Party and the price of their support will be a second referendum. Now, we said at the beginning, Dennis, it's an unpredictable election. And one of the reasons for that is the potential wrecking ball that is the, the Brexit party. Its leader, Nigel Farage, is not going to run for a seat himself because he says he'll be so busy supporting Brexit party candidates all over the country. Do I detect a group of people who don't care what the mainstream media say, don't care what the Tory or Labour Party say? but want to stand up for the 17.4 million people. Thank you. I think that clip 
tells us certainly that the Brexit party is going to be a loud voice in this campaign, Dennis, but what actual impact do you think they will have? Well, it's it's very hard to say. At the moment, uh, some polls have them uh, still up in the teens, and that means they are a threat to both the Conservatives and Labour, but a bigger threat to the Conservatives. If you look at the European uh, elections this year when uh, they uh, came out on top, uh, they uh, took twice as many votes from Conservatives as uh, former Conservative voters as they did from former Labour voters. So they are a bigger threat to the Conservatives. But there are some seats where if the Brexit party did well, uh, that they could uh, depress the Labour vote and allow the Conservatives to either retain a seat or to gain a seat, even on a reduced share of the vote. So they are a spoiler. Uh, what isn't clear is uh, exactly in particular seats how they'll operate. There's some evidence to suggest that in some of these old industrial Labour heartlands, that Labour voters, there's a certain element of Labour voters who simply couldn't bring themselves to vote Conservative, partly because of the memory of what uh, the Thatcher government did to their communities and to their industries, but that actually they'd find it easier to vote for the Brexit party. And so uh, it may be that all of those uh, voters uh, have already uh, crossed over. It may be that uh, the impact will, uh, in some seats would just mean that the Conservatives just didn't get those extra votes that they wanted. But it could also be that the Brexit party could uh, cost the Labour Party seats. And uh, there's a small chance that they might pick up a seat or two themselves. There's one in Hartlepool, formerly held by Peter Mandelson of all people, and that's a target for them. And there's so there is a small chance that they will come back with uh, some seats themselves. But they're unlikely to be a major player in Parliament. But they could be a major determining factor in whether Boris Johnson gets his majority or not. And what do you think is Nigel Farage's actual objective in the campaign? Because we know he made a, an offer of a deal to the to Boris Johnson the other day, which which Johnson could never have accepted. So you know, drop his withdrawal deal and 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 come to an arrangement with the Brexit Party. So what do you think is actually aiming to achieve? I think one thing he wants to achieve is just to stay in the game. And the the thing is that he's got a message, uh, which is that Boris Johnson's deal is not Brexit. It's not a proper Brexit because it's going to mean that uh, for the transition period uh, that uh, the, that Britain will have to continue to follow all the rules of the European Union and that then uh, Boris Johnson wants to uh, to negotiate a trade deal which could see uh, the, uh, the United Kingdom continuing to accept some European standards on things like employment or the environment. And so uh, he, I think he really wants to be able to keep this uh, betrayal narrative going. And it could also be, of course, that there will be a second referendum and uh, that in the event of a second referendum that uh, he would want to play a role in that. But certainly, uh, you know, and, and, and of course, the other factor is that if Boris Johnson fails to win, uh, a majority, uh, and the Conservatives are out of power, then there's a very good chance that there would be a convulsion within the Conservative Party. And that's something that that Nigel Farage might be well placed to uh, to capitalise on. There are cynical voices that would suggest that Nigel Farage wants to continue to be a media personality, and he now has a lucrative media career. Uh, he presents uh, a, a, a radio talk show, and he also has, uh, you know, spends quite a lot of time in the United States. He's friend, on friendly terms with Donald Trump. Uh, 
who called into his phone-in program uh, last week and put the cat among the pigeons about uh, uh, about Boris's trade deal because uh, or Boris's Brexit deal because Trump said that on the terms of this deal that Boris wouldn't be able to do uh, a trade deal with the United States. So uh, so he certainly can you know, he can keep himself as a relevant figure whether he uh, stands for Parliament himself or not. And given that he's failed to win a, uh, a seat in Parliament seven times, I think probably he may have just decided that the odds might be against him trying an eighth time. Dennis, we'll talk no doubt again about the issues in this campaign, which will manifest themselves as, as it proceeds. Um, but just one question on that for now. Will this election inevitably be all about Brexit? No, I don't think it'll be all about Brexit. It certainly will be about Brexit. But I think it's very hard over a period of five weeks to keep uh, the attention of the campaign on just one issue. And there's no question, but it will also be about uh, the state of public services. And and what Labour will be trying to do is to hold the Conservatives to account for their nine years in power. Boris Johnson is presenting himself as if he's at the head of a brand new government. But the Conservatives have been in power since 2010, and they have a long record to defend. And that's what uh, what Jeremy Corbyn will be going after. So I think inevitably, and just as you saw with the Jacob Rees-Mogg story, things happen during campaigns. And uh, it's very hard for any party, including the party of government, to keep control of any election campaign, certainly over five weeks. And, and, and finally, Dennis, there, another, another thing we'll come back to again, there are no end of interesting battlegrounds in this campaign and constituencies where, where fascinating races are unfolding. Maybe just pick out one or two for us now that we should keep an eye on. I think one that you might take a look at is uh, Cheltenham, which is uh, held by uh, Conservative Alex Chalk, uh, who is a very moderate uh, Conservative. He's somebody who, uh, and he, he represents a kind of a, a, an affluent Remain voting seat. And he's threatened by uh, the Liberal Democrats. This will really be a test as to whether Boris Johnson's uh, offer to the electorate of saying, don't worry, we're leaving, but we're leaving with a deal, whether that combined with the fear that uh, voting for any other party besides the Conservatives will put Jeremy Corbyn into power, if that appeals to enough middle class voters. Uh, and uh, and so certainly if uh, the Conservatives hold Cheltenham, that would be uh, a sign that things are going Boris Johnson's way. Another seat to take a look at would be in Derbyshire Bolsover, which has been held since 1970 by Dennis Skinner, the veteran Labour left-wing firebrand who is now 87. And he's been seeing his majority uh, shrink uh, with each election recently. And that's a a seat that's being targeted by both the Conservatives and the Brexit Party. Some seats nearby have already fallen to the Conservatives in the last election, the one next door, North East Derby. That fell to the Conservatives for the first time in a century in 2017. And that's the kind of seat that the Conservatives alleviate a strongly working class leave voting seat held by Labour. That's the kind of seat the Conservatives will have to win if Boris Johnson is to uh, get on track. Okay, so Cheltenham and and Boltsover. And actually, very finally, Dennis, just a quick one. You, You mentioned there in passing that Jo Swinson could be under pressure to hold her own seat. Does that apply to Boris Johnson as well? 
Yes, Boris Johnson uh, is in Uxbridge, uh, which is a kind of a London suburban seat, and he's got uh, quite a small majority of a few thousand, and he's a major target for uh, Labour. And they've been organising in his constituency ever since the last election, and they've got a big campaign there, and they've drafted in volunteers. There's a big event actually this evening that uh, Momentum are organising to flood the place with canvassers. There were some rumours that that Johnson might actually do a chicken run and uh, try to head off to a seat like, say, Seven Oaks, which is uh, now being vacated by the former Defence Secretary Michael Fallon, who's not standing again. But the word from the Conservatives is that he's not going to do that. It would look just too bad and that uh, obviously they're just going to put whatever they can into making sure that uh, that the Prime Minister doesn't lose his seat. Mm. I saw his Labour opponent on, on Newsnight last night and he looked uh, qu- quite a, quite impressive. But anyway, Dennis, it's been great to have you on. Um, kept you on for longer than, than usual. And of course, we'll keep this discussion going throughout the campaign. Um, we'll leave it there for now. That's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.